Welcome to Below the Line, where we talk about working in Hollywood from the crew perspective. My name is Skid. I'm a former assistant director and your host. Today, we're talking about Man of the House, the 2005 film that cast Tommy Lee Jones as a Texas Ranger assigned to protect five cheerleaders who witnessed a murder. Uh, at Rotten Tomatoes, the tomato meter score is 9%, and the critics' consensus reads, a high-concept movie that plays out like a mediocre TV sitcom. As regular listeners have heard me say many times before, here at Below the Line, we don't care about what the critics think. Normally, that's true, but this is a case where the critics pretty much nailed it. However, this also happens to be a film that I worked on, not as a member of the AD team, but as a coordinator for a company called Big Crowds, tasked with providing background bodies for wide shots at University of Texas football stadium. We're going to talk more about that because my guests today were members of the Big Crowds team. First, Alexis Sheehan, who we all knew as Squirrel. After almost 20 years in LA, you're a recent transplant to Florida, where you've continued your film work in a variety of ways. On Man of the House, you were an extras wrangler. Before that, you and I probably worked together on four or five films in LA. Nice to see you again. It's been a long time. Thanks for having me. So excited. Next, Ken Tui. You're currently a professor at the New York Film Academy campus in Australia. And despite leaving LA, you've also continued working on films. Recently, for example, you were an AD on Godzilla versus Kong. When we were working on Man of the House, you were also part of the team we brought from LA. And you and I knew each other from a series of earlier projects. Welcome. How you doing, Skid? What's happening? <laughs> Glad you guys are here. Rounding out our panel today is Damon Chang. Damon, you left the film business around the same time I did back in 2006, and you currently run a business-to-business -business consulting firm based in Taiwan. And unlike Squirrel or Tui, you were actually local to Austin, and you were one of the PAs we hired to help us wrangle the crowds for this film. Glad you could join us. Everyone, glad to be here. Listeners, this is your spoiler warning for Man of the House, although since we're focused on just one aspect of the production, any plot point reveals will most likely be accidental. So let's start with some origin stories and talk about how we got involved. For me, it goes back to when I was working on Seabiscuit. I was on the AD team, and I was tasked with managing the crowds for some of these racetrack setups that we were doing. To bring in those crowds, we hired this company called Big Crowds, which was owned and run by a gentleman named Cash Hoshman. And getting these folks to move around the racetrack, and we'll talk more about that uh, later in the podcast, I developed a system for how it could be done efficiently overall. Cash was impressed with my system and recruited me to join him working for Big Crowds for another film, a film that at the time was called Cheer Up that would be shooting in Texas. Before we go more into the details of the work, uh, let's go through. Tui, I think you were the next one to join our team, but correct me if I'm wrong about that. I think what happened was, is I actually did a, uh, another movie with Cash uh, in Los Angeles, and I did another movie with you separately. I was like a production assistant for you separately. And then this movie came up, and so Cash, I think, mentioned me, and then you're like, yeah, I know Ken Tui, and it was kind of one of those things. And then it, I just jumped in and I was kind of like, you know, ready to help you at any realm, basically. But yes, that's what Cash was saying. He was he was pumping you up going, hey, I know this guy Skid. He's got this amazing system. He knows how to move <laughs> these big crowds. He's really good at it. If you could just really assist him and help him, um, that would be great. And then uh, I was able to bring my brother, uh, my brother, Rob, Rob Holmes, and uh we were able to, and he's from Texas. So that was kind of cool for him. So uh, we were able to go to Austin and join you and basically help you on this production. So Squirrel, you and I worked on Seabiscuit together and then we brought you into big crowds. What's your memories of that? I had worked with you. I think cellular, I worked with you on something. It may have been cellular before Seabiscuit. You and I had a really good working relationship. I think you liked that when the paperwork was thick, you could just shove it at me. <laughs> and know that it was gonna be done properly. And uh, people management skills and all of that needed to be handled for Seabiscuit. I think that's that's how I got there. It was a zoo. I mean, Santa Anita Racetrack, it was a zoo. And uh, you, were, you were phenomenal. And I, <laughs> I actually learned a lot from watching that. And then when I moved up the ladder and started firsting and doing big things with like soldiers and you know hundreds of people, I, I learned a lot from from Seabiscuit that was a beautiful thing and then man at the house 
almost took it to another level, I thought. I mean, I've got some really funny stories, more about Seabiscuit than Man of the House, because Man of the House was a grind, my goodness. <laughs> or wait, what was it called? Cheer up? What are we calling it? Well, we're calling it both. Now, Damon, as we mentioned earlier, you were actually local to Austin when we came to town. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I, I was fresh out of college at that point. Well, tell us more about how you got involved. So as I remember, uh, I had just graduated maybe a year uh, and I was working at some coffee shops, uh, but trying to understand movies, helping out a couple of uh, friends do their like independent shorts, one of which uh, we later on did more work in the film industry, but in kind of a, a twist, right? I saw this, I think, ad on Craigslist for like production assistance. And keep in mind, like we, we shot independent movies, so we had no idea or I had no idea what a call sheet was or a day was. Anyways, I responded to this ad. Uh, suddenly I show up uh, in this room with maybe 50 or 100 other you know, young kids from Austin. And then the three of you were there. I think there was another guy uh, as part of the team. And uh, we went through orientation. And I, I, we'll probably talk about it more later. Uh, but that was my own first foray into real uh, movie making. Right. Like how a real set is run. Yeah. Two of your squirrel. Help me remember. I, I remember that we placed those ads in Craigslist. Boy, we were cutting edge back in uh, 2003 and we got a bunch of resumes. And I don't know if we interviewed everyone that sent in a resume or we were looking for some experience or interest. But then we went out to Austin and interviewed probably about 100 people, if I'm not making up numbers. And then we hired about 50 like to round out out of the team. Does that sound right to either of you or do you guys have extra color to add to that? You know what's good? I actually do remember because here's the deal. After you did this movie, I ended up taking over for your position basically <laughs> for cash. So I actually learned everything from you, Skid. I and I will go further into that, but I learned a lot of skill set from you. I thought you were a great manager, a great leader. And one of the things I learned from you from this movie was, okay, we're going to put this ad on Craigslist, but we don't want a thousand people trying to get this job because everybody wants to work on a movie. I remember <laughs> you saying, let's filter them. If they, if they haven't gone to university or they haven't gone to college, or if they had never worked on a movie before or a TV commercial or something, then let's just eliminate them. And I thought that was really clever of you because we did the same thing when uh, I worked with Cash again on Dark Knight Rises in Pittsburgh is we got 10,000 resumes and that was a good way to eliminate them. Hey, did they go to college and study film or have they actually worked on a film or music video or commercial or TV show? So I thought that was an excellent way that you actually I got from you, Skid, that you created. Well, and in the end, we need about 50 people to run these crowds and the crowds we're talking about. I don't remember the exact numbers from. Uh, cheer up, aka man of the house. But I think we're talking about five or 6,000 people. And to run it efficiently, we needed about 50. And so, yeah, there's no point in just talking to every single person that's interested. I think we got, we did very short interviews. People made very short presentations. Damon, do you remember actually standing up and saying a few words? Like, was that part of it or am I making that part up? Do you remember? Okay, here's my memory. I walked into a room, a hundred other people. Somehow you guys gave us numbers. <laughs> Literally, this my memory is like you call the number. I walked it to, to the desk. We talked for five minutes. I don't remember what we talked about, but it was something around five minutes. I think you, yeah, I would imagine you would ask background, like what's your experience. And then at the end of five minutes, you, I think, gave me uh, some papers and said, "Oh, so let me backtrack. You, you guys came into town for the weekend." which was also the shoot. For example, I think the shoot was Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So we had to show up, I believe like Wednesday for the interview. And then Thursday was orientation. And then Friday was the beginning of day one. So I remember like Wednesday, I show up into this room, talk to you for five minutes. You said, here's some papers, show up tomorrow for orientation. And the shoot is day one. And that was it. <laughs> 
I don't remember it being that compressed. I thought we made a separate trip out there, maybe even two trips to hire folks back in October or something like that. And that might not be true. I have some pictures of going out there that might have just been scouting photos in October. But I thought we interviewed people and had a little more runway on that. Chewy, squirrel, you're going to back me up on this? Or you think it was like Damon said, that tight between interview and hire and work? I know I didn't, I don't think I went on the scout. I don't think I was part of that. I don't, I could be falsifying a memory. I think you had me in front of, I thought we had a tent for some reason. And I was in front of the tent, maybe keeping the, the line moving once we actually got there. But I don't, I was not part of a scout that I can recall. But that was also a very busy time in my life. And I probably left one set and went straight to you. So <laughs> I can't contradict what uh, Damon's saying about it being that tight. That would be close, though, too. Is that you think we would have done it like that? Meet them, hire them, put them to work? No, I remember actually we went up there for, I think it was like eight days. It was like an eight day, 10 day deal. And I think you're right. Squirrel came up at the tail end. But she was, I think you're right, Squirrel. You were coming off a movie. And Skid wanted you to be on, on this movie. So you got flown in right before we were starting. But I remember I went up early with you, Skid. And we were there almost a week prior. And that's when we did the location scout and organized how we're going to do these interviews and how we're going to... Remember, we had two other people that were in charge of check-in. Remember, we had those, those, those two guys. They were a couple, right? They, they were two guys that were a couple. And they were in charge of the check-in process. And so um, I remember Cash wanting to divide it. He, he had the check-in process. And then he had Skid, who was the guy on set, moving the people when we're actually filming. Do, do you remember any of that, Skid? I'm not remember. I don't remember him splitting it like that. Um, we'll talk more about the system and I can, yeah. and, uh, this is going to be a big game of Rashomon. I can tell already as far as uh, what actually happened there. Um, I know I have date stamped photos that I went out for one weekend in October and maybe two, you weren't even on that just to see the stadium before we went out there the week of, but I do believe yes, that we would go out, get the setup, hire the people and train them all within one week rather than making a separate trip. That does make sense. As an aside, let's talk a little bit for our listeners who might not be familiar with just how big crowds worked overall. And so to make clear to folks, all the people you see on a movie that aren't talking are the background. And normally they're being paid. If it's a large group, they might be paid minimum wage, but all those folks are getting paid. But if the numbers get large enough, it becomes more cost efficient to hire a company like Big Crowds to essentially bring in people for free and then pay big crowds a fraction of what you would pay for regular background for each person that they manage to bring in. And then big crowds will go out and working with groups, whether it's churches or community organizations or just ads in the newspaper, they will basically say to people, do you want to be in a movie? Come work the day for free and claim those numbers and again get paid by the company. Here, here's basically the benefit. When you have a movie, you have to have your first, your first 50 extras. They got to be in the Screen Actors Guild, which is like the union. So those are the first 50. And so as a production company, when you have more than 50, what you do is you hire non-union extras. And the non-union extras are working at minimum wage. So you're paying these folks at minimum wage, basically, after you're 50. But when you have huge crowds, like, for instance, we had this big University of Texas crowd, of 10,000 folks or more than 5,000 folks, it would be very costly for a production company paying all these folks. So cash from big crowds had a way of basically charging a cheaper rate, basically having people show up. And it was beneficial for not only cash for his business, but also for the production company because they would save money by having bodies there. But here's the key element. To get the bodies there, that was the hard part. And that's what cash was really good at. And he was really good at promoting being in a movie and getting people excited about going to a movie. And I remember we used to give away prizes. Remember prizes was the big winner to get people there. And we supplied them with a lunch. So we give them a lunch, we give them prizes, and then we give them like craft service, which is like uh, fruit and crackers and bottled water, things like that throughout the day, just to keep them occupied. But I think... The prizes was the big thing. And I think it was back then it was like 
the big screen TV. Who's going to win the big screen TV? And funny enough, like when I worked on Dark Knight Rises, uh, the Batman movie later with Cash, we gave away a car. So you could just imagine that we actually give away a car to the audience, which was kind of cool. Hey, and just wait, one last thing about Damon. I remember Damon and I remember Cash hiring Damon because he loved Damon because one, he was a college degree. He just got his college degree and he was like a smart kid and he knew how to listen. <laughs> and I remember Skid saying that I need people that know how to listen and follow directions. And Damon was one of those people that listened, he followed directions and he made stuff happen. And I think that's why you really liked him a lot, Skid. Well, it was a good matchup with Dan. I just to read off that thing, but we'll, and we'll talk more about how we broke the teams down. But I needed someone to be with me with an extra radio so that I could listen on one channel to what was happening with production and then have someone next to me on the channel we were using as the big crowds uh, wranglers so that uh, both channels be live. And so I needed one person who was going to be with me all day that it would be a shallow curve as far as bringing them up to speed. And uh, yeah, then uh, we, of the folks we interviewed, Damon, you stood out. And uh, yeah, I mean, we'll talk more about it, but you know, it worked out. Well, thanks for uh, bringing me on. <laughs> it is because it kind of propelled uh, later on uh, a move of mine to LA uh, and a whole bunch of stuff later on as well. Well, and we will, again, we're doing a lot of teasers for later on in the podcast. So folks stick around, although there will not be giveaways at the end. But that was one of the things we did to keep people there till the end, because your wrinkle in all of this is when you hire background, they're getting paid to be there on an hourly wage and they work for you. But when you bring in a crowd of folks through big crowds, these folks are all basically volunteering to be there. And so we have to find a way to not only keep them around till the end, but also keep them engaged in the system. The challenge, if you just have an auditorium full of people, it's one thing. If you're just doing a concert scene and you needed 10,000 people, it'd be fine. But much like on Seabiscuit with the racetrack, where you've got 40,000 people and you're not going to bring in that many, at the uh, University of Texas football stadium, I don't know what the head count is, but it's equally huge. And therefore, you need to be able to move the people around so that they can be in a specific area of filming at any given time. And if it's a narrow shot, like we're really literally only putting people in the rows that are seen and not just spread all over the stadium overall, because that'll look very thin. The system we came up with, and I'll let you guys add more detail on that, is basically to try and create stickiness in the crowd in like groups of 500. So that when we check in, and this might have been a disagreement I had with Cash, because I didn't want to give up the check-in process. I wanted to make sure we followed the system. And that is the first 500 people were all told that they're going to be red and literally given a piece of paper that's red so that they associate with red. And then as we run them through the process, we have a group of production assistants who are assigned to the red crowd. And I think our count on them was like five per group, basically. Not a lot, but enough that... They could sort of be at all points with this group. And then once we do this with each group of, uh, say, 500 people, then it's a matter of moving them around by group rather than trying to split up, okay, half of you go over here, half go over there. We could say, blue group, you move to this section. Red group, you stay over there. Yellow group, it's time for you to go to lunch. And like we could move them around. And it proved pretty efficient. Like I was... Quite impressed with this. You can probably hear it in my voice. I was quite impressed with the system itself. I thought it worked pretty well. To, to clarify what you're trying to say here, basically, why you broke them up into color groups was the production decided they were going to do, I, I think from recall, they were, going to, well, they were going to do French hours. And that means they were never going to go take a lunch. And so what that means is that we still want extras. We want bodies there constantly because they constantly want to be filming. They don't want to lose that time during that lunch hour. So what you did was you broke them into these groups so that you can continue to move people in sections and break them at a certain time, but always had bodies for production. And I think that was the key. And that's why you give them the prizes and everything else is because you wanted to keep the bodies there. That was the hard part is keeping the bodies there because as you know, working on movie sets, it can be quite boring and it's a lot of waiting around and, you think it's exciting when you first talk about working on movies, but you don't realize 
it takes an hour or an hour and a half to set up some lights or set up a camera shot or to get everything organized and choreographed. So it's a sitting around for an hour and a half, two hours sometimes, and people get bored, especially when they're working for free. You know, you got to keep them entertained. And, and if I do remember, remember Dante, Dante was the entertainer. <laughs> Cash That's Austin, right. <laughs> Cash Oshman hired an entertainer. His name was Dante and he was hilarious. He was great. And he was this comedian guy that would go out to these little sections that you created, Skid, and he would entertain them in between these like little rehearsals and stuff. Well, Chewy, to clarify a little bit on that, I think, so one thing for folks who are not aware, yeah, French hours basically means not breaking for lunch. And it is because you have such a complicated setup. You don't want the entire crew to go down for even and not, you know, even 48 minutes, much less an hour, even longer to make that happen. So you're going to work straight through. And we couldn't lose all of the background at once. We still want to feed folks. But it was more than just being able to do that because equally, when people are working for free, you don't want people getting bored and just sitting down or leaving or starting to wander. But the colors created stickiness so that they were part of their own group. And I remember when I speeched them on the way in, it was very much stay with your own kind. And, it, and we did a lot of blue versus red and yellow versus green. Like, let me hear you like to, to create the idea of identity, even for these folks who are working for free, they feel like they are part of something and we care about them being there. They're not just one of a thousand people. They are part of a team. And then they responded to team direction. As much as the logistics were what we got to do, the psychology was critical for making it work. And that familiarity is important. Uh, like you said, there's a little bonding there. There's a familial thing that happens. You recognize the faces in your group. It worked beautifully. I remember that. Um, on Man of the House, you had me as a fixer. You had me floating. Because I keep trying to think, where did I go? And I kept getting little ticked because I kept having to put out fires in the parking lot. But I wanted to be in there, you know, in the mix and, and doing stuff. And I'm like, got to do what? Fine. Off I'd go. So I, I, as far as the, that, uh, Seabiscuit, I can talk all day because I was very hands-on on that one. But yeah, man of the house, I was more of a fixer and oops, we forgot something or somebody fell down and hurt themselves or whatever. And I was the pew, pew, pew. That doesn't translate on a podcast, what I just did. <laughs> pew, pew, pew. But you know what I'm saying. To your point, uh, Squirrel, it's the way we broke it down. Each team had five people assigned to it. One of them was given a radio and was like the leader for that color. And all of them, and again, going back to reinforcing it psychologically, we had them have literal placards of the color so they could see what color they were with those folks. Then we had separate teams for check-in and getting the process there. And that might've been something that was maybe sort of held over from Cash's normal working. And you know, to your point, I think Cash did want to control as far as the people that counted heads from the beginning. I think that's probably true. Those were his folks. And then we had another team that ran like the lunch line and, and craft service and basically dedicated to sort of support as far as getting them through so they could be committed to their role and that role could continue no matter what the individual teams were doing over the course of the day. And then of course, Damon, right? Pulled you out so you could stay close to me. And then, uh, yeah, Squirrel and also um, uh, another PA I knew from LA, Seth, came out with us to be able to sort of manage things where they needed uh, fixing over the course of the day. One of the things about this background is that what people don't realize is, Skid, you were running these thousands and thousands of background. And what your responsibility was, was basically getting these people in the movie shot. So you had a radio, you were in direct contact with the assistant directors and the director on the actual movie. And they were in direct contact with you, Skid, and you were running this whole operation. So not only were you getting these thousands of people moving in the shot and getting them in certain sections, you were having to deal with so many other issues, you know, like one of the extras having a headache. And I think that's where Squirrel would come in and fix things or, you know, uh, there's problems with people leaving and we don't want people to leave. And you, you know, you would send people to go fix that, but there was multiple problems that would happen when you have a big crowd of people that are unexpected. And that's kind of what movies are all about. They're unexpected, but you were ready for it. And you kept a calm demeanor and you were able to manage 
all these people and you have what 50 people working for you. And so, um, you know, hats to you. I think that's a, that's a very hard thing to do when you're dealing with multiple people and time pressure on a major movie set. That's a really good point. Good. Are you sure you didn't organize this so we could all sing your praises? For you? <laughs> yeah. I don't even know how to respond to that one. Um, no, Ken, uh, Tui, I called you Tui. Should I call you Tui still? Or if you're calling me squirrel, I'm calling you Tui. Tui made a really good point. Everyone that's an armchair quarterback watches a TV show. I could do that. The, the precision it takes to organize the check-in, costumes, proper everything, getting them organized. You, you think, yeah, okay, so you push a thousand people around. No, because every single one of those people has something to say, has a problem, has a car issue, has to get home for the babysitter. Everybody has something. So how do you motivate them? How do you cover yourself? Should people just start dropping out? Or, you know, like there's so much involved in getting this done. And like, like uh, Tui said, there's a lot of hurry up and wait. Go, 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 go. Okay, now wait for an hour. And I'm going to not talk to you for an hour. Okay, now run over there. Okay, now I'm not going to. Okay, now do the same thing 26 times. But on the 26th one, do it really loud. People don't understand what goes into these crowd scenes. And maybe after listening to the Below the Line podcast, they'll get a better idea and a better sense of what the crew does and like what it takes to make movies like this. Well, I think what's key to an element of both of what you're saying is that, yes, it's a large team. Like you said, we had about 50 people, but that in itself was organized in a way that responsibility could be pushed to the bottom. In other words, we had a structure set up where we assigned five people per color and we put one of them in charge. They're the one that had the radio. And then we said that somebody else was a second, just in case something happened or that person had to go aside, who would take over at that? And then their job was to manage the well-being of those 500 people. And then they would report up. And then if it was a problem that you couldn't solve or went higher up, then it came up to me. It wasn't like I was trying to manage the problems of 5,000 people. We built a basically command structure where problems could be solved at the lowest possible level, but recognizing that some problems are going to percolate, we had resources in place to take care of that as well and keep the entire system moving smoothly. And that's probably a good transition to the actual work that we did. We were there for three days of actual filming. Does anybody's memories contradict that? So I definitely remember it was Friday, Saturday, Sunday was the shoot. Actually, I, I don't remember when we got interviewed and hired, but I do remember orientation was Thursday. So it was the day before the shoot. So maybe uh, orientation was Thursday. And then uh, myself and all the other uh, uh, local production assistants came into a room. And I think that is when like you talk to all of us, maybe for five minutes at a time. What I do recall was that on that day, on Thursday, for some reason, when you talked to me for my five minutes, at the end of my five minutes, you said something like, uh, tomorrow on Friday, show up and then you're going to be my, uh, you know, right-hand man or whatever, right? Or backup radio assistant, right? So you told me tomorrow when you show up, come find me and then you're going to stick with me all day. And so that's what I ended up doing for Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. The one thing is, is that we were shooting in Austin, Texas. And so this is the home of the University of Texas, which is an amazing school in America on its own right. <laughs> but we basically... We took over the town. It was the talk of the town. Hey, <laughs> there's a Tommy Lee Jones movie in town. Everybody knew about it. We're shooting at the University of Texas Stadium. Everybody wanted to be part of the movie, wanted to be in the movie. And that was the key. So I remember going to actually like after work, going to like the bars with my brother <laughs> and trying to recruit extras for the movie. And that was like our little, like our little stick, you know, like, hey, do you want to be in a movie? And that was kind of like our conversation to a lot of people, you know, the locals in the actual bars was trying to get them to be extras in the movie. Yeah, it was, uh, it was pretty cool. Like one thing I'd remember about that time and that sh the shoot, uh, which I kind of still tell stories about today was two things. So a little bit to what uh, Tui was saying, I was next to you right throughout the shoot. And because you were next to on the AD team, you were on the, the field, you're on the stadium field. 
all the other local PAs, they were in the stands. Nobody got to touch the grass. <laughs> and then, like on day one, like I was like, holy cow, like I'm on, I'm on the field. This is so cool. Like at five in the morning, I remember like uh, taking a picture uh, like on the 20 yard line or something like that. That was like <laughs> cool as shit. And then number two, I, I learned a ton on that experience because like I said, like that was the first time that I'd really been on um, a shoot before. So then I would just follow you around, monitor the radio. Uh, but then suddenly, you know, I'm right next to Video Village or I'm right next to camera or grips and gaffers. I, I do remember, uh, I still kind of tell this story a little bit. I was like, man, I remember that time in Austin. I worked for this guy on this background shoot. But movie making is really tough because the first day you were moving around so much that I was like, well, I'm going to do a good job, right? Like, I don't want to slack off. I don't want to look bad. So I said to myself, okay, I'm, I'm going to do what he says. And then if he, if he moves, I move. If he stops, I stop. If he sits, I sit. I'm just going to shadow him and do whatever he tells me. And then at the end of Sunday, I thought to myself, I was like, God, he didn't sit one single time this entire weekend. And like, I was just like, man, I, I haven't sat, you know, the whole time I've just been moving around trying to do all these things. Uh, and that was something that I learned a, a bunch about um, a shooting day on a movie set. <laughs> I do remember on that first day, Damon, that you were next to me, except when you weren't. And we did have a little bit of a training curve in the beginning where your enthusiasm to get things done sometimes involved you running away from me to where something else was happening. We had to sort of course correct on that very quickly. We're like, no, no, that's what we have to use the radio for, because if you step away from me, then I've lost one of the channels. And so, uh, but yes, with three days to go, Chewy, I don't remember going out to any bars on that. I do remember being out there like four in the morning. That was a three days of grind, like to your point, what you said earlier, Squirrel. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't play. I was tired and I had a job to do. Any feature, I always buy a new pair of shoes at the beginning and I throw them away at the end. You don't sit, you don't get a lunch. I mean, you're supposed to, but as an AD, that's the only time you can talk to the keys without distracting them or you know, doing what you need to do. You hustle, hustle. There's nothing wrong with sitting down when it's appropriate. You don't have to run just to run. You run to get the job done at the best of your abilities in the most efficient way. But that, oh my gosh, man of the house, there was no sitting. Guys, remember those shoes that had the roller skates that could pop out? <laughs> those would have been dope. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about our relationship with the AD team on the film. I didn't know them well. And it's important to note that while we're moving all these folks around, they have another group of background that are being paid. They have a full band in these scenes. They have the people who are playing football players in the background. All of that is being run like a normal movie. And they have an entire team doing that as well. But I may have even been a little overcautious in that I was not working there as an AD. I had to be careful that I didn't start doing AD work. But you guys tell me as PAs and running around, if any of you had more interaction with them and the things that they were trying to do in these stadiums at the same time. You know what, now that you say that, Skid, I actually do remember now. That's exactly right, because you were in the DGA, which is the Directors Guild of America at the time. And as a DGA member, uh, there's certain things that you can't do unless you're going to get paid as a DGA member. And I remember you were coming in as a consultant for cash. That's basically what you were doing, and you were consulting for cash. And you weren't actually doing the DGA work. And that's where I got kind of stuck into so I was doing work like um, getting the folks through wardrobe. And I think Squirrel was actually even helping on a lot of this stuff, getting the folks through makeup and hair, which was basically just having them go through these big factory lines, getting them through the prop line, uh, making sure that all these folks have props. They were given signs and fingers and, and little props that you see in the scene. On the wardrobe, everybody got a shirt. And it was either burnt orange with a white Texas Longhorn logo on it or the reverse where it had the burnt orange logo on a white t-shirt and they were just handed out to each person so that the crowds had some sort of uniform in the background. As a matter of fact, I'm holding it in my hands right now. I have the orange one with the white steer and on the back, it has the logo cheer up filmed in Texas, 2003. It was totally fine to put a movie note on the back of the shirt because it was next to impossible 
that any of our people would ever be seen close up on their back. And so up in the stands, and it was a souvenir they got to keep. One of the things that you have to do with this background is move them. Because what happens is the cameras get moved in different positions. So whenever we move the camera in a new position, we would have a new section that was empty out in the stands. So we'd have to move these people into those empty seats. So we, we basically reuse the same extras. And I remember one time I was with this big crowd and Skid, you said, okay, move those people. I think it was color red or something. Move those people from this section over to that section. So I ran over there and I, and I was trying to talk to the crowd. I was like, all right, guys, listen up. This is what we want to do. And I remember Skid going, you're wasting too much time. <laughs> you need to just tell them, stand up. Everybody just stand up. And then once everybody stands up, then you're able to give them a command, like move over there or move to this section. But that was the first command that I remember Skid saying was stand up because now you got people moving and the production sees that people are moving. So me trying to talk to them like, hey, this is what we're going to do, blah, 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 blah. If I would have just said stand up like Skid did, people are moving. Production sees people are moving. And that, that was actually one great little skill set I learned from you, Skid. And wait, one more little thing I want to add was in normal crowds, you have people moving. And I remember, Skid, you're saying you got to have some people moving, like going to the bathroom or coming back from the bathroom. Like normal people at a nor normal stadium, there's few people moving through the crowd. And so I, I was trying to pick out people. Okay, you're going to be a mover. You're going to be a mover. And I remember Skid going, no. Everybody that has a birthday in January, you're going to the bathroom and you're coming back to your seat. That was a great little skill set that I learned from you too, Skid. Chewie, I remember that moment. I remember <laughs> hearing that on the radio. I don't remember a thousand percent of what happened, but I remember that. To back up Skid a little bit, yes, I the production tried to pull me off a couple times to do little things. I'm like, I'm sorry, I can't. I've got a job to do, whatever. But I was doing something, walking down one of those long corridors on the outside, and I heard that. And I remembered having like a, ooh, moment. <laughs> of course, I was just picturing Tui going, oh. I mean, look, to get people to work on a movie and get people moving under a short amount of time, I thought the locals were great. We hired a lot of local PAs. I thought they were really very efficient. The extras were good too. They were enthusiastic and happy to be there. And that's kind of like the one fun thing about these big crowds. They were just excited to be there and you, and you feel that energy and it's rewarding. At the end of the day, the real thing is it's fun to work on movies. It's exciting. It, it feels like you're, you're adding something or you're participating or you're part of something or part of history in, in a certain way because you're creating this, this thing that, literally last forever a movie it's kind of cool in that sense follow up on that too I, I, I agree with you the enthusiasm of the of the background even these folks who were there for free particularly sometimes the folks who are there for free uh it's contagious and uh yeah i gotta say looking back on my film career uh days like seabiscuit days like on uh big crowds those are probably some of my favorite days in the industry overall I mean, I'm sure I've blocked out a lot of the ugly stuff, but I enjoyed it. I got fond memories of that. Okay. When you, if you have allergies, you take your allergy pill and you don't think, oh, it's working. You just feel normal. You don't notice when it's working because you shouldn't because you, you're just not feeling crappy anymore. I think in a weird way, being, being part of an AD team and being part of the main, main, main thing, if you don't notice, if you're not upset, if you're not finding fault in the big crowds happening back there, then we're doing our job on that show. You know what I mean? Like, it's not, it's not a problem. It's not, I have to fix this. We're waiting on the crowd again. They need to focus here. We do this there. So if we, if we didn't uh, create a rift or get you in trouble, Skid, then I think we did a good job. Just saying. I do think we did a, we did a good job for those folks. Uh, other memories from the shooting days, uh, anecdotal stories you guys want to share? I went to USC film school. And so as a USC Trojan, you know, I'm a big USC fan, but it was really super cool to watch the University of Texas, hook em horns, UT, <laughs> how they recreated like the beginning of their football games. 
It's Tommy Lee Jones basically running out to the football field of University of Texas. It's like they have this, what, a song and this bull running out, these hook em horns, the crowd going nuts. And just that memory alone, I mean, I just, I get excited when I see it on t- TV, when I see UT on TV I, and, and seeing the, how we recreated, how close we were to recreating it too, was kind of cool. Yeah, I mean, I, I think for me, just kind of being my, my first experience was just soaking it all in. Like I wasn't privy to it, but I do recall some stories about Tommy Lee Jones. Like <laughs> he wasn't going to come out or he was going to come out and address the crowds or he wasn't going to come out. Uh, I, I remember that was a topic of discussion. I think that one of the things besides having Dante the comedian and giving away prizes is cash likes for the actor to come out and say a few words to the crowd. Cause that's sort of a blocks in the, I was there at the movie. Um, I didn't have any interaction with Tommy Lee Jones myself. He did not look like he was having a good time. The times I did see him there on set. Yeah. He was not someone who came and got on the God mic and, and spoke to our people. Would that typically happen? Like would, would on, on other shoots, would they have the, the main, the lead actor come out? It's all about the actor. It's, it's the actor who wants to say hi to the crowd. So for instance, on the Batman movie, Dark Knight Rises, Tom Hardy, who played um, Bane, he loved talking to the crowd. And he was awesome with the crowd. And he would do it in his Bane voice. <laughs> and he would get on the microphone. And he actually he's the guy who actually gave away the free car to the crowd. <laughs> so, I mean, it's got to be just a certain personality, I think, of the actor or the star. You know, he was one of those guys that just, you know, loved crowds. And he was funny and cool and but, you know, you don't realize if you're one of those crowd people and you get just that little, that little experience with somebody that's like a star, that's something that you remember forever. Terry, I've never been jealous of anyone, but Tom Hardy's my hall pass. <laughs> just throwing that out there. Let's spend a few minutes here at the end talking about the movie itself. Now, for people listening out there who think, I should see what they actually did. Do not be confused by the 1995 film of the same name starring Chevy Chase, Farrah Fawcett, and a young Jonathan Taylor Thomas at possibly the height of his home improvement fame. That's a different movie. You can find that on the Disney Channel. If you want to watch Man of the House, I think it's available for subscribers on Stars. I don't know why Stars has picked it up, but I know you can watch it there. Personally, I have an uncle that digitally buys all the films I had anything to do with. And so I was able to watch it through my friends and family connection with my uncle. Um, But did any of you actually watch this film? So Skid, yes, of course I watched the film. I watch every film I work on. The reason why I watch every film I work on is I like to see the work we did. So I'm actually looking at the movie. I'm looking for the crowd. I'm looking for when those people move for that one second or just that, that reaction in the crowd that made the movie. Because whether you think it or not, background is such an important part of movie making. It's part of the, the image, the screen. So being a contributor to that is, is pretty cool and exciting. And I like to look at the work that we did. You know, I agree with you about how important the background is. And I think that's why we do invest this time and effort in, in trying to get it well. I think it's worth noting that for all the work we talked about, all the prep, all the people, all three days, uh, the stadium scene runs for just under four minutes at about the 25 minute mark. You can check in, there's like four minutes of stadium stuff. And all that effort we did, all the effort that all the crew did, everybody involved is really for only for about four minutes of the movie. So uh, man, a lot goes into it in making this stuff work. I'm saying no, I haven't seen it because it didn't leave a mark, but I'm sh- I must have watched it. I had to have watched it, maybe even in the theaters, but I just, I just, it didn't leave an impression with me. I think I watched it way back in the day. I don't have much recollection of the film itself. I did watch it in preparation for the podcast. Uh, I did not watch every other scene in the movie going through. Um, so engage with this film at your own risk. Chewie, we mentioned earlier, you worked for Cash for a while afterwards, yes? 
Yeah, so that was kind of the funny thing is, Skid, is this movie basically was an opportunity for me to keep working with Cash and doing multiple more movies with him. I think, uh, Skid, you you actually went on to doing more AD stuff, and that was the big thing. You could I wasn't in the DGA yet, so you were in the DGA. You had to do some more DGA work, and I remember you moving on to other things. And But it gave me an opportunity that I got to actually start running the operation that you basically were running. So I basically learned all the skill set that I learned from you. And uh, I was able to do multiple more movies with cash and running big crowds. Yeah, I think I might have also priced myself out of other jobs with cash. I was consulting for cash, both literally and figuratively. But uh, it's possible that AD work tempted me back onto that side of the business for sure. Squirrel, did you end up doing another one of these or uh, other crowd work after that? You know what? I don't think I did. I think I, I went back into my pool of indie film and getting my back broken in other ways where, where my neck was more on the line. <laughs> but it was, um, like I said, I learned a lot of tricks and that served me well as I moved on in my career and working on the big crowd films helped me for when I got to the stage in my career where I was the one that was in charge and I was the one hiring and delegating and whatever and how important it was to have crew that you can that you don't need to check up on. Crew that knows what they're doing. They've got your back. They make you look good. I need crew that makes me look good so I can do my job over here and know this is good. So I, I, I took a lot away from my big crowds work. So thanks for dragging me along. You know, it's kind of an aside at the beginning, but mentioned both with uh, Chewie and you, Squirrel, that we had worked on films together before. And so that in building this larger team, similarly, I brought in people that I knew that I could uh, trust and depend on uh, to do the work that needed to be done. And we showed such a good time to Damon that he actually moved out to Los Angeles sometime after this. I think, like I mentioned before, I was kind of right out of school, 2023, 20, 24. After this, moved out to L.A., and I remember I got in contact with you, Skid. You asked me to come on to the next project that, or the next show you were working on. So I ended up working on uh, Entourage uh, as a production assistant on varying days. Uh, and that really was kind of, you know, my, my first foray into how the movie industry worked in L.A., especially on the production side. So that, that was great. Thanks for that opportunity. So, Damon, I'm curious. Your first job was Man of the House. That's massive. That's like <laughs> otherworldly, universal, huge. And then you moved on to Entourage. Just I'm mind blown on that one. Gobsmacked, if you will. But. Was it interesting for you to see the difference of running and gunning for what we did on Man of the House and running and gunning for Entourage? What were the similarities or differences? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. I, I would actually add in one more, which is early 2000s. So independent filmmaking was just on the rise. And I had uh, worked in part-time jobs, right? So like I was doing like coffee shop stuff and whatever. Well, I didn't even know I was going to go into the film business. So I was trying to figure out what, what is the film business. And in Austin, the film business is, is essentially, and my, my friend's got a camera and wants to be Robert Rodriguez and go shoot something, right? And then a producer is just somebody that goes and helps you out. Well, man in the house, I was like, wow, this is huge. Yeah, like this is really big. So there's that comparison between what we did in Austin, you know, just like student films and then like man of the house. And then when we got out to LA, for me, uh, Entourage was really when, you know, the great thing about that time was that I was working for Skid on both. And so he was really kind of taking me through all of that, right? So there's that consistency, but everything around me was just brand new of learning. And then when I got out to LA, like, I, I don't think I was on Entourage uh, as a full time. Like, I think uh, Skid, when you needed somebody, you would call. I think I ended up working like maybe two days a week, maybe one day a week. But when I got out to LA, I ended up applying for a bunch of local stuff. So student films, USC shorts, you know, other things. And I remember two things. One, I was like, man, in LA, people pay you. Even if it's a student film, you still get a day rate. <laughs> and then I was like, okay, I'm going to make a rule. I'm going to reply to all these Craigslist things. And I'm going to just say, I'm going to get paid, right? So I'm going to try and do that as long as I can. In Austin, you could never, ever have done that. Everybody expects you to get, you know, free work. 
But in LA, I was like, oh, I'm just going to say I have a day rate. And then what happened was I would go on to entourage set and I would literally like learn on the fly call sheets and all this stuff. And then I would take it to the smaller productions that I was applying for. And I would say, hey, this is how the real studios do it. And then uh, apply that knowledge. So it was a couple of years of just really intense uh, training on film production, which is really, really cool. Hey, and just one more thing, Skid. What I wanted to tell you was because of what you did on Biscuit and Man of the House, you know, big crowds actually became a known entity for the film business of getting some big crowds and moving them efficiently. You were asking movies that I did with cash afterwards. You know, I did Rocky Balboa with Sylvester Stallone in Las Vegas. And I did The Fighter with Mark Wahlberg in Boston. And we went and did Moneyball with Brad Pitt in Oakland. I mean, that was one of the exciting things to do is because I'm from the Oakland area. I'm from Walnut Creek. And my dad was a big A's fan. Here I am working on Moneyball, and I was able to hire my, my brother, who's an A's fan, and my nephew, that's an <laughs> A's fan, and I was able to get friends and family to be extras that are all A's fans, and here I am running this whole production for Moneyball in my hometown to what I grew up to, which is being an A's fan, basically because of my dad. I mean, it's a full circle, and I think it's pretty, pretty cool that we were given the opportunity, and it all started... Working for you, Skid, <laughs> at Man of the House. Guys, this has been fun. You said a lot of nice things about me. I'm humbled. I'll probably edit half of it out. So folks at home, you can just imagine how many more nice things they said, all the different time zones that we were coordinating. Thanks so much for being here today. Thanks, Skid. Great to see your face, Chewy. Great to see you again, David. This was awesome. Great to see everyone. Cheers, guys. And this is season nine. If you're new to the podcast, I hope you'll check out some other episodes. It's easy to peruse the entire catalog at the website, below the line, one word, dot biz. That's B-I-Z. All episodes of the podcast are also now on IMDb, so you can cross-reference the film credits of my guests. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and rate us if you like what you hear. If you've got questions or comments, you can send email to skid, S-K-I-D, at belowtheline.biz. If you're on Facebook, you can find photos and other behind-the-scenes materials at Podcast Below the Line. And finally, you can follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram. It's at Pod Below the Line. Thanks to Curtis Five for our music and John Juan for our logo. The logo is available on t-shirts, mugs, and stickers at redbubble.com. Loyal listeners, thanks for spending another episode with us. Tell your friends. We'll be back again next week. When do you think you'll have this podcast out? Are you going to send us the link, basically? Are you Are going to email us the link? Yeah. You guys are scheduled to publish... Uh, here, I'm on that up here. I'm sorry. Let me pause it. Nobody say anything funny that I could have used for the out credits without warning me first.